Good day, and welcome to the University of Minnesota Extension and Agronomy Minnesota CropCast. I am your host, Dave Nikolai, Extension Educator in Field Crops, along with my co-host, uh, Dr. Seth Nave, Extension Soybean Specialist here at the University of Minnesota. And today, Seth, we have a full studio here for our podcast, and maybe you can explain to our audience a little bit about who the folks are that are in our studio today and what we're going to be doing on today's podcast. This is a fun one. I've been waiting for this uh, for quite some time. Um, we've had a lot of crop-related um, discussion topics uh, recently, and I I had a few of these ideas in my pocket to use later this winter, and I'm already spending uh, some of that capital right now uh, for this one. So I know we're just barely into the fall, late fall, winter season, but I really wanted to get a chance to talk to some of our terrific graduate students in the Department of Agronomy and Plant Genetics. And um, this is kind of a hybrid uh, uh, podcast today. We're, we're doing this in joint uh, collaboration with the Minnesota Soybean Research Center. Uh, this is a group of, uh, of uh, faculty that all do research on soybeans. We work together uh, to collaborate on new projects, uh, put proposals in, uh, and also uh, work with graduate students uh, in, in, in preparing them uh, for their positions uh, going out into the real world. So we've got three terrific graduate students that all work for um, agronomists within uh, the Soybean Center. And so we're going to just hit this off and have a little conversation with each of these. We're going to get a little bit of background and hear about their research topics and what they're working on uh, here today. So first we're going to meet with uh, Mary Jane. That's MJ Espina. Is that right, MJ? Yes, that's correct. Okay, and so we're going to have a little discussion with her first, and then we'll pass uh, the mic on in our little room here. Uh, but first, I'd like to ask you, MJ, what, uh, where did you come from? You're not from Minnesota, um, and you've had a little bit of a, of a trek to get here. And so give us a little bit about your history, where you grew up, where you went to school, maybe some of your early career work, and, and uh, then how did you get to Minnesota? Right. Um, so I'm originally from Philippines. Um, I did my undergrad in Visayas State University, uh, an agricultural university in the Philippines um, in plant pathology. And then I worked for a little bit on rice research. So I had a very good research experience working with rice, actually working golden rice for a couple of years. And then um, I decided after four years that I really want to advance my career and um, set a plan on going to the U.S. and pursue my master's. So I did my master's at Tennessee State University working on soybeans. So I've been working in soybean for like quite a while now, maybe nine years. And after finishing my master's, my husband actually got an opportunity here at the University of Minnesota. But prior to that, I had an opportunity to visit Bob Stupar's lab in 2015, and then when I moved here in Minnesota, I touched base with him if there are opportunities to work in his lab, and then that's where I got started. I worked for a couple of years as a technician working with Aaron in a breeding program, and then in 2019, I transitioned into a PhD student where I work now um, with continuing to work with soybean. Awesome. So this is Aaron Lorenz you're working with, but I wanted to back up to the very beginning. So you mentioned golden rice. So tell us a little bit about golden rice. For those of us that don't know what golden rice is, I'm sure there are listeners out there that 
Actually, this is new. We don't we don't grow a lot of traditional rice here in Minnesota. So what's golden rice? So golden rice is basically a biotech crop. So the main purpose of it is just to, um, in third world countries, hidden hunger is very prevalent, like vitamin A deficiency, um, malnutrition. So in the Philippines, since rice is a staple crop, with um, the scientists thought that if we could put that vitamin A in rice, then that would at least help address the malnutrition and vitamin A deficiency. So right now, um, I was part of the very early work of the golden rice, um, early testing, field trials, and then I went back home in the Philippines actually a couple of months ago, and I finally got a taste of golden rice, which makes me so happy. Oh, that's that's great. I didn't know where golden rice went. Um, I knew that it had some uh, challenges along the way. So is it in production now uh, in apparently in the Philippines? Where else is, is it in production? So I'm not sure about the other country, but I know while I was working with golden rice before, it, there's also like a um, parallel project in Bangladesh. So right now in the Philippines, um, there's... Um, Supreme Court rule that halt the golden rice production, but it's already been approved. But there's just like it's halted, but it's in currently seed increases in the research facilities. So hopefully, when that rule is lifted, like it can be like distributed to the farmers. Yeah, there was a lot of hope uh, for those that follow the biotech controversies globally. There was a lot of hope. Uh, originally with with golden rice that it was going to be kind of a trailblazer in terms of um, changing the public view on GM crops because it was more of a of an output trade instead of all input traits like herbicide resistance and insect resistance so I think there was a lot of hope that the the public would see the value in this and that there would be a quick changeover in terms of public perception of GM traits when 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 golden rice came out but I think I think the the challenges with golden rice show that, you know, the, the biotech and GM crops and acceptance globally isn't quite as easy that as a lot of people had hoped. Right. And also, also like some of the countries, like there's not really a regulatory like stuff in place to get it moving. But fortunately in the Philippines, that's, there's a good regulatory system. I wanted to move on and talk a little bit about where you are, uh, Tay, going forward, working with uh, Dr. Renz's lab and so forth. Are you on a track in terms of the, uh, a graduate program here? Uh, what's, what's the goals or the end games that you have in mind for yourself? Yeah, so I'm currently a fifth-year PhD candidate. Um, I actually just mentioned Aaron, but I also work with Dr. Bob Stupar, so I'm co-advised between the two um, professors in the Soybean Research Center. So my fo- the focus of my research is um, iron deficiency chlorosis on the genetics part. So we want to understand the um, genetic mechanism underlying the iron deficiency chlorosis resistance. So hopefully um, the timeline is to finish in about a year. And, you know, future plans are really, I'm really interested to work in industry and work on trade discovery research and continue like the path that I've been working for the past few years. Yeah, so IDC is a tough one. So um, what, uh, what have you learned along the way about uh, IDC and, and in terms of your, your subdiscipline, this area that you're working in, in terms of um, um, 
um, the genetic um, uh, res- genetic tolerance or resistance or uh, tell us about what, what you're working on, I guess, specifically in, in terms of IDC. Yeah, so specifically um, we're trying to characterize, I, I hope I don't put too much jargon for the audience, but we're trying to characterize some candidate genes um, that we we hypothesize um, is the causal for like resistance in IDC. And I don't want to go into like too much jargon, too much details, but really the most important thing I want to put out there is understanding the genetics and understanding this candidate gene will give us um, bigger comprehension of the biology and the physiology of the trait IDC. And with that, once we understand more of it, we can develop better strategies and tap some of the tools out there so we can improve the trait and develop more resistant um, varieties. Yeah, I think a lot of farmers and ag professionals listening are really, you know, aware of this and know of the challenges. And they, they, I think it, it's a, it's a, it's a problem in soybean that's so visual that it gets a lot of attention and it causes a lot of damage, of course. Um, but farmers are also very sensitive to it because they notice that variety tolerance is very highly variable from one variety to the next, and. And I, I know that they're also challenged whenever they get a new herbicide trait. They, these soybeans with IDC tend not to carry as good of resistance as, as the, the previous one. So I'm sure that there's a lot of farmers that are interested in, in your work and understanding and in, in your advancement of the science around IDC because I think, I think there's a lot of room to move this thing forward. Definitely. And, you know, being my work, being more in the lab, so in the past three years, I've been like trialing some of the lines that we are working on. And it just amazes me that sometimes as a researcher, and if you mostly work in the lab, you don't really see the bigger picture and the bigger impact. But in the past three years that I've been dr- like driving around Minnesota, even if it's for work or like personal like travel, you see around the state and you see all these yellow patches in the field and it gives you a lot of motivation as a researcher to actually like work on your craft and continue to like work on your research because you see the impact on the farmers and it's really there. It's happening visually. You can see it just driving through the fields. That's really nice because I don't know that a lot of students, graduate students in particular, can, can really see that connection to what they do. They either do something very, very basic or something that that doesn't necessarily apply uh, in in their kind of ecosystem that they're they're living in. So that's that's really really cool. Uh, I appreciate that. So you spend a lot of time out in Western Minnesota. Then do you uh, get to uh, get to look at your plots very often, or or can you do everything remotely by looking at drone imagery and those kinds of things? Um, so since my plot is not so big, um, I don't have like thousands, ten thousands of plots. So I usually go out there and I want to see symptoms. That's really good to go out there and see your plots anyway. So right now I'm going like northern Minnesota, basically Crookston area. So that's quite a drive from the Twin Cities. But yeah, in this past summer, we have these lines that we've been crossing on um, with the QTL that or with the trade, um, the region that we're working actually and to see the differences in the field that, okay, this is the same line, literally same parental lines, but then with this line, with the IDC resistance introgressed on it, and you can see the differences like the green versus yellowing, 
the stunting um and that makes it gives you a lot of motivation to really like you know seeing how it works and it's worth all the investment of the farmers you know when we talk about idc in minnesota uh, in addition to obviously uh, the cultivar or you know in what's in the genotype there's so many soil factors and weather factors what things make this difficult to deal with because um this is we've been dealing with iron uh, IDC for for many many years or, or decades and in, in situations with that. Uh, what have you been able to learn or maybe work with some of our soil scientists and some of those things in terms of um, uh, situations and things that that intersect with uh, with, with IDC? In other words, uh, is it consistent in in the genes or? Um, are we just getting overwhelmed sometimes with uh, soil type and, and uh, other types of weather and environmental situations? Yeah, that's actually another part of my project is to look at, I haven't, really haven't taken up, like I have the genetics part, but I also want to understand the physiology. And in the past couple of seasons, I've been trying to um, analyze the seeds, actually. What are the elemental components in the seeds? So it's just iron, but what else? Because usually we do soil analysis, we also probably, we didn't look at the seed, like how much iron is there if it's planted in an iron deficient condition versus a normal condition. So that's one thing I'm looking at, but really, I really want to understand what's the interaction between the plants and the soil. So in, there's no data yet that I can give, but um, what I've been trying to do is basically get soil samples and then also analyze those plants and get the iron content of the plants in the seed at the end of the season. So we try to understand the interaction between the plants and the soil. So that would give us an idea. And another thing is like, yeah, as you said, like are there differences in the soil profile within the state? We know for sure that pH is a big factor of that and calcium is a big factor and obviously moisture. So all those things makes IDC very difficult to really characterize in the field. You'll, you'll have uh, a good opportunity. You could spend a long time here, it sounds like, in working on in Minnesota. But thank you for all your efforts. We appreciate that. Yeah, I would love to talk about IDC all day. But we instead of inviting one person in, we, we invited three. So now we have to, we have to spread we have this to move on. spread this around just a little bit. So we have Alina Smolskaya. Is that correct? Yep, that's me. Okay, we we have to move a move a headphones over to, for Alina. But um, tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you come from, and how did you get to uh, the University of Minnesota? Um, so originally, I'm from Belarus, but I immigrated to Minnesota when I was quite young with my mom, and I've done most of my education here. I grew up in Bloomington, where I went to high school, and I got my undergraduate degree in plant sciences here at the University of Minnesota. And now I am a master's student studying with Dr. Aaron Lorenz, who's a soybean breeder, and he's been in the um, podcast before, and also by um, Dr. Um, Robert Stupar, who's a legume molecular geneticist. Yeah, those guys are very productive scientists, and that's why we kind of have a have a, um, a a number of a couple of our students here today are are co-advised by the same advisors. But those those fellows have a, a lot of really nice projects going on. So. Uh, tell us a little bit about your research project. Sure. Um, for my thesis project, I'm working on trying to identify and map 
a single gene that is causing a change in the soybean's leaf shape, as well as changing how many seeds develop in a pod. So why, uh, why is this important to growers? So what uh, I know that farmers are very sensitive about leaf shape and they think it's kind of cool to look at different um, soybeans, but I think most of the time they like to, um, and they also look at, at numbers of seeds per pod, but I think usually they're mostly focused on yield. So mm-hmm. how, does that, uh, how does leaf shape and, and soybean um, the seeds per pod um, contribute to yield? How, what do you think is going on? Um, yeah, that's a really fantastic question. And um, I think that this is a very interesting trait because it's a single gene that's controlling these two important things. Leaves are, of course, the primary site for photosynthesis, and they're an important um, aspect of plant architecture. And the number of seeds per pod is a um, yield component trait, as well as how many pods there are in the plant, things like that. So getting a better understanding of this genetics that control these important traits, I think are very, um, I think it's important to know those because based on that knowledge, we can try to modify the plants in a direction that's more favorable Then maybe we can try to improve the architecture or improve the yield for the farmers. So when we look at historical soybean varieties, some of the early plant um, introductions into the U.S. Some of these Chinese land races had really big, wide, fat leaves, and it seemed that there was through some of the early breeding through the you know through the early part of the 20th century into the middle of the 20th century at least that there was some some effort, or maybe maybe accidental, but there was some some change in that leaf shape so that the more modern varieties definitely have a have a narrower leaf shape. Do you think? Do you think there was something, um, do you think that the breeders were maybe bringing along um, that leaf shape because they liked the look of it? Or do you think that they saw more uh, seeds per pod? Or do you think that there was, they were breeding for yield and then that just came along with it? Do you, do you kind of see where I'm going with my question? I'm wondering, we kind of changed the, the leaf shape in our, our soybeans uh, a long time ago. And I'm wondering how that may have, may have happened. Hmm. I think there's some relationship between the yield and the leaf shape, but it's not something that I think happens in every genetic pathway. I think there are some backgrounds where the two aren't unrelated, mm-hmm. but I am guessing that breeders usually select on yield. Mm-hmm. But leaf shape and leaf size, um, it can change how light gets into the canopy, and it can change maybe how weeds are being suppressed. And also, if um, if the plant can photosynthesize in the most efficient manner, like maybe the bottom leaves will get more light if the leaves on top are a bit smaller, something like that. I think that's. I think some of the later physiology would definitely, you know, lead us in that direction. That that sharing of that light is definitely important. Where we have big flat leaves, uh, they basically are just absorbing. Um, all the light up at the top of the canopy and aren't efficiently passing that through to those lower strata of leaves. I think that was, that's probably part of the, the increased, um, I would guess that that would be part of the increase in productivity around those. Are, are narrower leaves, do they, by their nature, are they more upright than a big flat leaf? Or is the, uh, is the how those leaves set in the canopy independent of the leaf size. Do you have any, have any feeling for that? 
Um, unfortunately, I don't think I know the answer to that. Um, I don't work so much with the narrow leaflet type because that's already been mapped before and studied. Um, I'm working on more of a trait that changes the leaf shape from a um, normal or ovate type to an oval type. So it's a very small change in the leaf. Oh, I see. I thought you were looking at something quite different. So that's, that is interesting. So, and is, is there an association with that trait and the, 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 the pod type and the seeds per pod? That's, that's, it sounds like there's, there's a relationship with, with those two types as well. Um, yeah. So with this oval type of leaf shape, we see a reduced number of seeds per pod. And the one that we were talking previously, the narrow type that's been mapped before, that's been associated with an increased number of seeds per pod. I got you. Now I understand better. And I think this goes back to um, um, the Roundup 2 gene. When, when, that, uh, when that, uh, that event came out for farmers, there was a lot of discussion. Uh, Monsanto at the time, I think it was before Bayer, was really promoting this idea of a lot of four seed pods. And they had farmers out looking out in their fields for fours and fives. And that, those varieties had that lancelet type leaf. So I think there was a, there was probably, I'm guessing that some of those first, um, first lines that they introgressed that gene into were probably lancelet type leaves. And so um, it, it definitely got attention from farmers uh, from, a, from a marketing standpoint anyway at that time. Oh, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> you, should, you should be going back to graduate school, it sounds like. I over, do or... need to go to graduate school. I, there's a... <laughs> There's a lot to learn. It's kind of cool. I really that's part of why it's so great to have students in today to learn about what what's what's happening out there. Well, and, and I, so Alina, are you looking at the molecular basis of this too then? You're working backwards and looking at specific genes and and you're identifying specific genes related to the leaf type and the and the the pod type? Um so we hypothesize that it is a single gene, but we're still kind of in the early stages of this project where we're trying to narrow down the region. So far, the interval that we have is having maybe 40 genes, which is a bit many, but we will try to reduce that to a couple candidate genes and then do molecular testing. So for the folks that are listening, we'll talk a little bit about basic genetics here. When if we talk about a single gene event, and we have single gene events and resistance, and a lot of different things, is it prone to be more variable in how you predict things are going to occur, um, the presence and absence, or does it make it easier for you to pin things down, so to speak, because it is a single gene versus, you know, a multiple gene? Oh, I see what you mean. Um, single genes do uh, typically make it easier to find them, but this um, leaf shape characteristic and the number of seeds per pod characteristic um, Sometimes it can be difficult to look at because it's not black and white and there's environmental factors that affect those traits as well. So we have to be careful in what we consider a large number of seeds per pod versus a small number of seeds per pod and where we make that cutoff of is this shape oval or is this shape normal or ovate. So this would really help the plant breeders on the other end when they talk about um, moving things along in a fast situation in terms of moving from one type of a soybean to another generation, if they, if they know some things ahead, you know, in terms of the, what the genetics are and so forth, rather than just, you know, taking yields, that it does enable plant breeding to advance 
faster in this degree by having this knowledge or these tools? Is that one way to look at this? Oh, definitely. It's much easier to work with a single gene when you're trying to improve a cultivar. Yeah, plus she has two really smart advisors that complement each other. You know, we've got Aaron Lorenza can do the, the breeding side of this and and a lot of the analytics on the on the the, um, the genetic structure here, but then Bob can go in and just knock out any of these things he wants to, right? At, at will, and and we can create any of these uh, variants, and so that'll be part of the. I assume that's part of the testing. That if you do identify a specific gene, then then Bob could go in and, and create some sort of a knockout by some method, uh, CRISPR or otherwise, right? That's correct. Okay, so then, so then that would be a perfect test for you, and then that could eventually be employed, perhaps, to alter these varieties just in a very specific way. Yes, exactly. Perfect. I think we, uh, for a couple of dummies, I think we've uh, we've gotten some, uh, we've figured something out here. Well, for sure, genetics, uh, genetics one hundred and one. Here, we're going to be switching uh, things around and and give our uh, our final graduate student here, Seth, if you'd like to introduce him. A little bit about, and I guess uh, you folks, uh, both of you were just in St. Louis at the uh, American Society of Agronomy meetings. Is that correct? That's right. Carlos and I were both there, but we weren't alone. I don't know how many tens of thousands of people go to that meeting, but it's it's always a large meeting. So we've got Carlos Sanchez here with us now, and, and he's actually somebody I'm quite familiar with. He's one of my graduate students. So, uh, and in fact, my only graduate student right now. So Carlos, tell us a little bit about yourself. Again, uh, following the same format, where did you come from? How did you get here? And uh, why are you still here? Right. Uh, so I'm originally from Honduras. Um, I grew up in a city that's uh, very well developed for agriculture in the southern part of Honduras. And there's where my passion for agriculture comes from. Growing up, I saw my dad and working for many companies in that area. And that... for that. Um, helped me to understand what agriculture really was. And I went to college in Honduras, to the University of Zamorano. And after a um, couple trimesters in, I realized how important agriculture was for the world. Something that I wasn't being, that hadn't been exposed until that moment. And I have many friends and many colleagues that came from all around the world that also opened my mind to many other opportunities that are out there in agriculture and how agriculture connects people around the world. So um, towards my fourth year uh, in college, I had the opportunity to visit one of the universities from the south of the United States where I had the opportunity also to do an internship and do um, some research there. I really loved what I did and that was more related to entomology, but I also love the fact that you don't really have to be a specific uh, or study something specific in agriculture to understand what agriculture really is and how these little dots connect to each other and how these big uh, and they form a big net that's uh, what sustains the our world uh, in terms of food production so after that i went back to um, to finish my degree my bachelor in Honduras, and uh, after I graduate, I came back to the United States um, to do an internship um, here at the University of Minnesota, where I had the opportunity to collaborate with people um, that were working um, on soybean production um, and nutrient management. Um, you might be wondering why the connection of soybeans to, to me in Honduras, and 
Um, that's something that I wonder this, this, the first day I arrived here, cause we don't have soybeans in Honduras. And if we do, it's just for local use and rarely areas of Honduras have them. So being here also made me realize how important this crop is in the United States and also around the world, how many people get benefit from it and how it sustains agriculture together with other crops. So after that, I was offered the position in our lab, in the NAVE lab, to be part of the, the team, and be, I became a technician for a couple of years, where I also had the opportunity to trans, uh, transition to uh, and be a grad student. So uh, right now, I am being co-advised by Dr. Seth NAVE, our host, and then by um, Dr. Fabian Fernandez from the soil um, department that, um, from my understanding, was here a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, he was just here too. So we have a lot of connections to, to former people. And in fact, Carlos started working here as a math student with uh, Aaron Lorenz. So there's, right. uh, there's a number of, every, Aaron Lorenz has a common thread through everybody here today. Uh, so Carlos, tell us what you're doing. What's your research project? And uh, give us a flavor for what, what you're up to. Right. So um, when I started grad school, it was a challenge for me because I had been exposed to the soybean world, but I I didn't quite understand um, everything that was happening around it and trying to understand the crop better. But I had this opportunity to be in grad school and learn about it. And my project uh, um, is focused on the integration of tillage, drainage, and crop residue in the rotation of soybean and corn. So uh, my research is more focused on crop management and plant physiology, and we are trying to see um, what the outcomes are from all these treatments that farmers in the, in the United States, particularly to Minnesota, are uh, implementing in their fields. And as we know, every season, it's, it's quite different to the, the previous season. So we're just trying to see if all these methods are uh, still valid for the reasons that they are being applied for. Yeah, so, um, you know, part of the challenge we have with graduate students that have a lot of field research uh, is that we don't always have the environments that are most suitable for getting the, the, the results that we expect, but we always find something uh, out there. So you're doing work on drainage, and now you have research in 2023. So how did... How did 2023 work for you in terms of drainage, Carlos? Oh, that was challenging. I will say that in 2021, when I started my research, we started to see uh, an anormality in the weather pattern. And we know that soybeans are really resilient to many of these environmental factors when they changed. But in this case, it was kind of particular because the rainfall um, amount that we got that summer was um, abnormal to what the normal was. Um, we decided to go on the second year that was 2022, and it is slightly changed a little bit, not for better, but for worse. This year was completely different and, um, well, somehow different because there were some uh, periods of the season that um, the rainfall was normal but most of it, it was completely dry. So that was really challenging when we had to measure or assess our drainage plots and try to see what the yield um, or the production of soybeans and corn was in regards of that treatments. 
Yeah, it's it's a real challenge when we have, you know, the intensity of these weather factors that we deal with and then the duration of those and the timing of those. It's 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 uh it's real challenge when we have a year like this. So in 2023, we actually had really heavy rainfall early in the spring. And so that that site specifically where Carlos is doing his research had a lot of um, excess water very early in the spring, uh, but then it dried up right away. So now we're dealing with, uh, you're dealing with the data and trying to understand how that, how that timing of that rainfall affected our, our crops. So I think uh, I think you're uh, gonna gonna learn a lot by the time you wrap this thing up. So you were in um, in St. Louis last week, and so you gave a little presentation, a short presentation, then a poster. So what what kind of interest did you get when you were talking to folks uh, about your research? What what did what was interesting to those folks as they walked by your poster and had a chat with you? Yeah, one of the questions that I had was um, why drain plots uh, for soybean were performing performing worse than undrained plots and that was um that's part of our scope in our research and that was uh really interesting to see because in poster i was showing that um the yield production of this year was completely different to what we were expecting because drained plots um didn't kept didn't keep that enough water for the plants to absorb um, so undrained plots did better while that was something that we were not expecting. And that's something that I was discussing with folks around the country. Um, something that is very particular to our side. And uh, even some folks that are within our state, they didn't see the same rainfall pattern as we saw in the south central part of Minnesota. So taking that one step further, this is what is this your first year on in the field? I should back up a little bit here. It's my third field. Okay. Third, third okay. Year. So, do you think that we will get to the point, perhaps in Minnesota? I think they're doing in other in other states, where we're controlling the drainage a little bit more in terms of of uh, limiting the amount of outflow and inflow, and even irrigating the other direction and so forth. Is is that something besides just a uh, basically a drain pipe and a pipe out that you see as uh, helping growers and, and farmers in terms of mitigating and, and monitoring that and, and limiting the amount um, in through uh, censoring and sensors and instrumentation? Yes, definitely. Um, because our research is focused on that area, um, this is these are the outcomes we are getting. But in the western part of the state, I've seen how many farmers... Um, profit from this practice. And that's something that is really necessary because as Seth mentioned, we have um, very wet springs. So that's really necessary. And this year in particular, we had corn in the undrained plots that were drawn, so we had to replant. So seeing in, in that scenario, comparing both treatments, we could see how a, um, a farmer can benefit from that particular uh, practice. Another thing that we are also implementing in our site is the use of um, sensors in the field that can tell us the amount of water we are getting, the amount of water that is available for plants, and uh, what amount of that water is not being kept in the soil because of drainage. And um, part of the outcomes um, probably will be also that will tell us if it's time for us 
to modify these structures of drainage that, since they were installed, haven't been touched just because um, rainfall patterns were not a big thing in our site a while ago. So. Certainly, this is, Seth is like a precision farming, precision agriculture, but in a little different vein than we think of, 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 of a mapping tool per se, but still precision. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, and I agree with Carlos. I think farmers generally think that um, drainage, the farmers that I talk to generally think that drainage is use, use, universally good for them. And uh, I think just by demonstrating that there's instances where we can, we can drain too much off is important for them to understand. And, and uh, even though this is one particular site, uh, that's an important part of the, the finding. So real quickly, though, you, you do have these other, we're, you're interested in looking at these interactions with other management. So you have tillage, so no-till, strip-till, and, and uh, conventional till, right? Yeah, that's correct. And so how, what's your feeling on how those management factors interact with drainage? Is there one of those uh, tillage schemes that seems to be more resilient for the farmer in terms of producing more stable yields, or, or, or is it variable by the year, do you think? Um, I'll say that both conventional was or has been more um, precise to what the yield production is. Um, I could see that farmers can benefit from it more uh, than no no till at all. But also now it's been a trend and um, farmers are changing to a strip till, which falls right in between both. So in some cases, conventional tillage it equals uh, strip till so there's uh you know that these uh, the outcomes are really similar similar and then um in relation in relation to till uh, tillage to drainage it's very interesting because the because of the lack of water that we got this past summer it was very hard for us to see what the real outcome is or for us to see the real potential of drainage in the in the site, but we could see variations that even though they were in the same drainage conditions, these three um, tillage methods were different uh, among the three of them. Fantastic! I I think we uh, we kind of wrapped this up at a very high level. We didn't get into all the depths of your. Um, your uh, your thesis and dissertation work, but um, and I hope we gave you a little bit of a preview what your prelims and your, what your uh, your thesis <laughs> and dissertation finals are going to be, and with some of our probing questions here. Uh, but uh, I think with that, I think we should uh, wrap it up. What do you think, David? Well, I, I think this is very good practice for their orals, and uh, you know, an opportunity here to uh, impromptu think on your feet a little bit. Uh, but uh, you all did a very good job. So as far as I'm concerned. We passed today. We'll see where the rest of it goes. Yeah, we'll see. We'll talk to their advisors and see how they uh, they graded them on these <laughs> All things. Right. All right. Well, thank you again for uh, uh, attending here for the Minnesota uh, CropCast, University of Minnesota uh, podcast in uh, Extension and CropCast in the Department of Agronomy. Uh, I'm Dave Nikolai uh, with the uh, University of Minnesota Extension Educator in Crops, my co-host here. Uh, Dr. Seth Nave, Extension Soybean Specialist. And you know, you want to practice with uh, saying their names one more time, or you just want to say generically who they are? I think we had a great turnout here, and I'm not going to try to uh, repeat names. And so I think we're just going to we're going to let it go with that. We'll have it in the writing and uh, in the write up in here in um, in the Minnesota Crop News. So thanks again for uh, listening in and attending uh, again here at uh, Minnesota Cropcast. 
and we'll see you next time. Thank you.